0: Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report's new weekly Air Power podcast, sponsored by GE
1: Aerospace. I'm your host, JJ Gertler. And I'm Vago Maradian. As the United States and its allies are working to better harness air power to deter adversaries and win conflicts, and given the reality that 100% of the Earth's surface is covered in air, we thought it is a great time to launch a podcast that explores air power whether it's light blue, navy blue, coast guard blue, or marine or army green, with air power leaders, whether they're in government, on the hill, in uniform, industry, or think tanks. JJ, what's your catchphrase for the program? Well, Vago, we're going to talk about air power, whether it's fixed wing, rotary wing, inhabited or
0: remotely piloted from whatever service and whatever country. So if it's in the air, it's
1: on the air. So basically what we're doing is a form of all wings considered, and with that, a quick word from our sponsor. <laughs> from America's first jet engine to the revolutionary three-stream adaptive cycle XA-100, GE Aerospace has been delivering firsts for military propulsion for more than 100 years. Learn about its latest innovations at geaerospace.com XA-100. And Bell sponsors our daily podcast, Leonardo DRS and HII, sponsor our global coverage, Fortress Information Security, sponsors our weekly Cyber Report, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems, sponsors our strategy coverage, and Ultra Intelligence and Communications, sponsors our command and control coverage. And check out our other weekly podcasts, Cavus Ships, hosted by our contributing editor, Chris Cavus, and our
0: producer, Chris Cervello, and sponsored by HII and GE Marine, a GE aerospace company, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters. The downlink with our contributing editor, Laura Winter, takes a thoughtful look at all things space. And our cyber report, sponsored by
1: Fortress Information Security and hosted by Vago Maradian himself. Each week, we are going to start with a recap of the big and little headlines you may have missed. Help make sense of what happened and have a conversation with thoughtful guests. On this first program, it is just JJ and I, and JJ is going to start us off with uh, news of the week. JJ, what happened this week that we all should be paying attention to air power wise? Well, Vago, you can't start a new air power podcast without talking about the biggest program in the history of
0: Department of Defense, the F thirty five. One long term issue has to do with the production rate of the F thirty five new information this week that was foreshadowed a bit earlier suggests that the production rate is going to be falling off the table in years to come. Second, in a more short-term issue, following the crash of an F-35B in Fort Worth, the program has halted all engine deliveries, and there's a little mystery that goes along with that as they check out what may have happened to that aircraft. Is the Air Force's next tanker a no see Frank Kendall has something to say about that. And an airplane that people may not have even known was in the Air Force is leaving the Air Force. It's the story of how one man's job change is allowing the service to retire an entire fleet.
1: Um, I, I think it's rather uh, extraordinary that Adam, you know, the, the service waited all of two weeks uh, for Adam <laughs> Kinsinger to leave the house. Uh, not even two weeks, Right. <laughs> Talk to us a little bit about the RC-26, because there are a lot of people who don't know uh, that the Metro liner was even in service uh, with the U.S. Air Force and doing any mission, uh, much less some actually controversial domestic missions that the airplane uh, flew, even though uh, the Air Force has used it to good effect. Talk to us a little bit about the RC-26, its mission, uh, and what its departure means, because there are powerful political messaging that goes along with that.
0: Oh, sure. And that twin turboprop commuter liner has been doing reconnaissance missions for the Air Force for many years. The Air Force has been trying to retire it for several years, but every time they tried, they ran up against a roadblock, which is a man named Adam Kinzinger, as you mentioned, the now former representative from Illinois, who during his time in Congress and before, and I believe even now, flies the RC-26 in the Air National Guard. Now, every time that that aircraft was proposed for retirement, the Armed Services Committee on which he sat refused to go along. That's an illustration of how Congress treats a lot of defense programs and particularly requests for retirement. Similarly, you will remember that one of the people leading the fight to keep the A-10 in service was New Hampshire Senator Kelly Ayotte. You look at that and say, what does the A-10 have to do with New Hampshire? Well, the answer was not very much at all, but Senator Ayotte's husband was an A-10 pilot. Where people sit, or more importantly, where they go home to often has a big influence on where they stand on issues in the Congress. And frankly, that shows up most often with retirements rather than other kinds of programs.
1: What, JJ, you know, you spent uh, many years uh, on the Hill, both on the Senate side, as well as the House side, and then uh, a decade, uh, more than a decade at Congressional Research Service, right? So that gives you at least 20 years of uh, congressional experience under your belt. What can the Air Force, right? I mean, historically, whenever the Air Force has tried to retire airplanes, it has tended to go badly. Um, In the case of the Navy, um, the Navy does offer up, offer up capability and it ends up uh, being retained. Uh, and often the Navy ends up getting more money. I mean, it got a little bit more budget authority this time around than the other uh, services. It's managed to convince everybody that the Pacific is all about sea power, even though it's as much about sea power as it is about air power. Um, ultimately, what are some lessons you think uh, that the Air Force can learn when it comes to dealing with Congress and not being seen as Uh, the defiant one uh, that is sometimes forced to keep capabilities around, even if it doesn't get the money to do it, which then pressurizes everything else in its budget.
0: Well, I think there are two big lessons and the Air Force has already shown signs of learning one of them. If you'll recall back, I believe it was around 2013, the Air Force proposed retiring a whole bunch of C-130Hs from bases all around the country. And that took Congress by surprise. There was no preparation of the battlefield. So once they saw that proposal, Congress's reaction was, no, A, it's a surprise and Congress hates being surprised, but B, you're taking something away. And no matter how much the Air Force explained its rationale, they didn't make an inroad until in subsequent years, the Air Force started coming with a carrot as well as a stick and said, yes, we're taking away this, but here's what your base is going to get, and Congress has become gradually more amenable to retirements. And in fact, in this year's authorization bill allowed more retirements than they had in the previous several combined. The lesson, however, they can learn from the Navy. And again, the Air Force has tried to learn this. The Navy has a number. They say each year, this is how many ships we need in the fleet. And the folks who support sea power line up and say, yes, that's the number. Even if the number changes over time, they've got a number. The Air Force doesn't have a similar number of whether it's squadrons or combat coded fighters or anything else that they stick on the wall and say, we are willing to die to get this number. You'll remember a few years back, uh, Secretary Heather Wilson tried to establish such a number, a minimum number of squadrons for the Air Force.
1: 386. 386. I I have the coffee mug.
0: And that lasted a few weeks. And then the number was never heard from again. But but the Air Force simply doesn't have a metric they can point to and say, if we don't have this, we can't do our job.
1: But, but in a sense, the Navy has also gravely damaged its credibility, right? And that was always the Air Force's uh, concern, that we will generate air power, uh, and we're not getting hung up with any of these kinds of, of metrics at the end of the day. And Congress uh, is uh, going to uh, uh, you know create a commission in order to shape the Navy. And indeed, ultimately, at the end of the day, Congress ends up shaping everybody, whether it's the size of the Army, uh, the, the Navy, or, or the Air Force, right? Um, what are ways to more clever, you know? What are you know? I th- I think that if you uh, you know talk to airmen and you listen to uh, Secretary Kendall or you listen to any of the major uh, commanders, you li- listen to CQ Brown, the chief. They do make a case for uh, air power, but the Air Force has a tendency of always putting it into a joint construct. Do you th- do you think, as somebody who's been watching this for a long time, does the nature of that messaging perhaps have to change a bit? to be more air power centric, because there was always this concern that we're going to go air power uber ales, right? I mean, not to channel Merrill McPeak. Um, <laughs> and, and so a reticence uh, to, to do that.
0: It really depends on who the defense secretary is at a given time, because remember, the Air Force has really two uh, hurdles it needs to overcome. Yes, it needs to get Congress to back its plans, but even before it gets anywhere near there, it has to get those plans into the president's budget submission, which means convincing the Department of Defense and convincing the uh, budget folks at the White House that this is the right number. In some years, they've been able to do one. In some years, they've been able to do another. But I'm trying hard to remember a year in which the Air Force successfully hurdled all
1: three of those gates. Uh, At the at the risk of uh, wearing this issue out, uh, we're going to have Secretary Kendall on the program and we can certainly and we will be asking him about uh, how the service and what the service is doing to better tell the air power uh, story, uh, uh, ultimately, which has been a long running, uh, long running issue. I want to go to the uh, F-35 production rate issue. You, uh, Steve Trimble, uh, wrote about it. Uh, last week, but you have uh, been discussing it for a little bit. And in fact, at the Bank of America Merrill Lynch Annual um, uh, Aerospace and Defense Outlook Conference on which we are partnered, uh, you made the case spotting this from the selected acquisition report uh, figures uh, and divining what it means. We also uh, have an engine halt. Uh, this all ties in, uh, in a sense, there's the block four program where we have a new radar. We discussed that, uh, on Sunday's program. And obviously in the background, we have, uh, the competition to see whether or not, uh, we, uh, fix, uh, the F-35 engines, uh, uh some of its challenges or go to a new generation of power plant in, uh, entirely with the adaptive, uh, the AETP program, Uh, GE Aerospace obviously is our sponsor and the producer of the XA-100, and and Pratt & Whitney is competing with the XA-101 as well, obviously Pratt, the maker of the F-135 engine. Talk to us in the broader context of the F-35 program and what each one of these news elements of it means, because it appears like we are slowing annual rates to stretch out production, uh, which is a time-tested technique. But also would be significantly more investment that may be needed in order to modernize the range, right? AATP uh, is looking for an engine that increases range. Um, uh, You know, certainly we've heard from General Electric on 30% more uh, range, better acceleration, better cooling, right? These are all requirements of the program. Walk us through what all of this means in totality for uh, what is not just America's most important combat aircraft program, arguably, but the world's, given how many allies and partners have signed up for it, right? Uh, there was an announcement about uh, F-16s going to Turkey that also included F-35s for Greece, for example, and and more equipment sets. Walk us through what all of this means in the giant jigsaw puzzle. That's the F-35 program.
0: Well, Vago, I think we could take the rest of the entire day on this program, but let's start with the production rate issue. Do you like mysteries, Vago? Have you read the Hardy Boys?
1: <laughs> yes, uh, I've read the Hardy Boys. I'm quite fond of Agatha Christie. Uh, and uh, I'm a reporter in Washington, JJ. So basically, uh, it is it is both the mysteries of life and, uh, and of issues big and small that fascinate me. Well, Go I on.
0: particularly liked the Hardy Boys a case of the ominous SAR footnote that came out in <laughs> May of 2022 in may
1: i didn't really realize that was one of the hardy boys series i'm gonna to have to go back and look at my book my childhood bookshelf for that
0: <laughs> well in may we received the december 2021 selected acquisition report for the f-35 program it had all of the usual numbers with the budgets and the unit costs and the future of the program and where it's been but buried in a footnote toward the back of the document was what could be a very significant change for the F-35 program. Here's what the footnote said, that the F-35, which had been expected to serve until 2077, was instead going to serve until 2088. That's an 11-year extension of the life of the F-35. If you're a supplier of sustainment for the F-35, you might look at that and say, well, that's good news. The airplane's going to be around longer. In addition, it said the service life of an F-35 is unchanged at 30 years. Okay, but if you're going to be operating the plane 11 years longer and the service life hasn't changed, that means you have to produce it 11 years longer in order to have viable airplanes in 2088. But on top of that, the total number of aircraft to be produced didn't change. So now you're looking at building the same number of aircraft over 11 more years. That's big difference depending upon what kind of uh, viewpoint you have. If you're a long-term investor, Lockheed is still selling the same number of F-35s. It's just t- taking them longer to do it. If you're a short-term investor, the annual production rates go way down. And that changes what the folks on our business podcast would call cash flow. But if you care about combat power arriving in the world's air forces, this could be a significant change. At the risk of doing math in public, let's just look at the big numbers. There's just under 3,500 orders right now for F-35s. They've delivered a bit fewer than 900 aircraft. That means there's about 2,600 left to go. 2,600 over 14 years, that's currently the program, means you've got production rates north of 160 up around 170 a year to satisfy that need. 2,600 aircraft over 25 years, which is the new projection, suddenly you're down to production rates of less than 120 per year. And that's part of what Steve Trimble wrote about in Aviation Week this week. He got documents indicating that the out-year production rates that are projected are now matching what was prophesied in that selected acquisition report in May.
1: So, you know, in many cases, this is also reminiscent of what happened to the F-35 program when it went from, uh, right, I mean, there was that big cost surge, and I want to say it was at least 15 years ago when we took it from a 33-year program to a 55-year program, as I recall, and all of the reporting came up about, you know, trillion-plus-dollar program. Well, if you extend the life of the program 20 years, and especially uh, in that back end, is where you really want to be on the sustainment side of the equation ultimately um, uh, because you know, older airplanes are much more expensive uh, to maintain uh, and uh, to operate any any last points you want to add by the way do we know any more about what the 135 uh, issue is uh, obviously some challenges with the power plant uh, it is asked to do a lot of things it was developed some time ago uh, in in order to power uh, three versions of a common airplane including uh, the the bravo version uh, you know with a, a coupled uh, gearbox uh, to drive the lift fan you know there were blisk issues with it uh, the crash you were talking about last uh, year well, was a pre-delivery flight uh, before Lockheed handed the aircraft over uh, to the U.S. government. Uh, the uh, pilot uh, ejected from it, uh, and and so um, you know no no lives were lost in it. Even if uh, there was uh, damage to the aircraft, ultimately, do we know any more about what it is that the that happened? Well, the pilot did earn his Martin
0: Baker ejection tie that you get for surviving a crash with a Martin Baker ejection seat. Uh, I don't have one of those ties. I hope never to earn one, but I will say that the Martin Baker keychain that uses the ejection handle motif is a valued swag at at most aerospace conferences. Anyway, uh, with regard to the engine delivery. I
1: see you you maintain your eye for the finest swag, uh, JJ. I use mine every day, Vago. Uh, (laughs) That's not a plug. That's not a plug. We're not doing anything else other than saying, cool, let's move on before we get ourselves into trouble.
0: That's right. Well, look, here's the issue with the engine deliveries being halted. Obviously, if you're investigating an incident and you think the engines may be involved, you don't want to take more engines if there might be a problem with them. What I find fascinating about this particular halt is that they didn't just halt the engines for the B model they're halting all of the F-135 engines coming for the entire program until they find out what happened with this particular B model. As you note, the F-135 is made by Pratt & Whitney. The lift fan is supplied by Rolls-Royce. They interact. We don't know yet which, if either of those had a particular problem, but you've got the entire F-35 program in stasis for the moment until we get more investigation into what actually happened there. And that's Little curious because it suggests that they may believe there's a wider problem than just with the version for the B model. Uh,
1: and and we should point out, right? I mean, there's there are software codes, engine control. I mean, there is a lot, and and of course, at the end of the day, that there can also be uh, pilot uh, error uh, in, involved. We as have no idea
0: what caused that incident, or if it was specifically engine related.
1: Uh, but, it, but, it, but it is interesting that they uh, halted that. Uh, we'll have more on that whenever it becomes available. Uh, I want uh, to move uh, to the other big headline uh, made by uh, Secretary Kendall. Uh, on uh, the need, you know, you, you said uh, n- no see uh, but uh, the notion of a stealth tanker and indeed the role of stealth aircraft more broadly, um, we've considered low observability as something uh, critical, whether it was the F-117, the B-2, uh, obviously the F-22, the F-35, uh, uh, B-21, uh, as well as other programs rumored to, uh, you know, and, and I mean, even the SR-71 had low observable uh, characteristics uh, to it. Uh, and the folks at Skunk Works at Lockheed Martin have been making the case that ultimately we need to consider stealth tankers. Mm-hmm. Um, there are those who have made the case that we also may need some stealth transport aircraft uh, in order to get into increasingly contested airspace. Uh, uh, and, and you could uh, apply uh, the same model to reconnaissance aircraft. You see the U.S. Navy with MQ-25 uh, trying to field a low observable tanker from its carrier. Uh, Debts. Boeing uh, developing that uh, program, the Stingray for the Navy, uh, which uh, will will be doing a lot of important work. W- walk us through what this statement from the secretary means and what it could mean for other tranches uh, of the Air Force's tanker recapitalization program. You know, we're on X. There's going to be a Y. There's going to be a Z. Uh, it looks, and uh, the service has said uh, we don't need a gap tanker. The KC-46 is the right airplane um you know ev- even as we're recapitalizing at a very slow rate right we bought KC-135s at about 80 a year uh we're buying replacements to KC the KC-135 at about 14 a year w- walk us through this stealth tanker statement and what does it mean because for some it's oh there goes the air force again as opposed to saying well actually there could be a really good reason why you would want to have low observable tankers given your ability to pass gas is as vulnerable as the planes that are delivering it.
0: Shortly after 2001, when the Air Force started one of its several attempts to recapitalize the tanker fleet, the plan was to buy three tranches of tanker. The original was KCX. That was a replacement for the KC-135. That would be 179 aircraft. Then when you got toward the end of KCX, the idea was to look around, see if any new competitors had emerged have a new competition for another 179 tankers called KCY, but in the absence of new competition, that was going to be just a continuation, another 179 of whatever you were buying for KCX. KCZ was originally intended to be a much larger tanker, a replacement for the KC-10. That was then. Over time, as the Air Force has considered what tanking looks like and frankly seen what it means to replace your tankers at 15 a year, which is the current rate coming out of Boeing for the KC-46, there's been a realization that KC-Z may need to be something different. And there's a question as to whether there needs to be a KCY. You alluded to a bridge tanker, which was the Air Force concept for a while, something to get us from the current KC-46 to whatever KC-Z is. Lockheed Martin has been pitching a variation of the Airbus A330 MRTT. They call it the LMXT. I call it Schrodinger's tanker because (laughs) depending on when you look at the Air Force's official statements, there's either a KCY competition or there's no KCY competition. We're just going to buy more KC46s or we're going to lease the capability but not buy the capability. It's all over the place. We have no idea right now whether there's going to be the middle tanker, the KCY, or that will just become more KC-46s, which is Secretary Kendall's most recent statement. But the KCZ is what has changed in concept from a large tanker to a stealthy tanker. Frankly, the realization that we have to deal with Pacific distances and that you'll need to tank forward in probably airspace that may not be entirely in our control is leading to a different idea of what a tanker should be. We don't know yet whether it's inhabited. We don't know yet how big it is. We don't know yet any details about it. And as you say, more and more aircraft in more and more roles are moving to stealth as the cost of entry. Why? Because Russia and China have shown they're willing to sell their most advanced air defense systems to pretty much anybody. So if today it's difficult to go downtown in, say, Moscow, Tomorrow, it's difficult to go downtown in Tehran. The day after that, it's difficult to go downtown in Caracas. If the Air Force is going to be able to operate at a time and place of its
1: choosing, as is its preference, stealth becomes what you need just to get in the door. Um, you know, your uh, point is reminiscent to the argument that uh, then Air Force Secretary Mike Wynne would make uh, to try to defend uh, the F-22. Uh, right at the time, uh, Secretary Gates was talking about, you know, it's not particularly useful in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, and Mike Wynne's point was, you know, that's, that's not the point. His brother was lost uh, in an F-4 Phantom uh, during the Vietnam War against the very best air defense systems uh, that the Soviet Union could supply to Vietnam, and that ultimately uh, it is a, a global issue, not whether or not the jet was uh, applicable uh, to you know, a particular narrowly uh, defined um, you know, lower intensity or non-state uh, conflict. Let me just ask you uh, one last question, because we've got about 30 seconds uh, left uh, in the show. How do we need to think about this new tanker in a broader construct, right? Uh, The folks at uh, Air Mobility Command uh, are looking at what should be the next transport fleet uh, and would appear to give some opportunities to think through what that architecture looks like. Does this, from your standpoint, have to be connected to whatever the new transport is do we need to be thinking bigger about the solution here rather than just uh, a narrow perhaps or or is this just a narrow boutique capability that gets bolted on, or something which I suspect you and I both are has to be in the construct of a broader architecture.
0: It has to be in the construct of a broader architecture, because remember what transport aircraft do. They carry the supplies for the ground services. They need to go wherever it is the ground services are going to be. Yes, the Air Force is looking at the concept of agile combat employment, where they need to be able to take supplies forward to less prepared strips and areas, but bottom line, I've got a Bradley or whatever the Bradley successor will be in 30 years, because that's what we're buying a transport aircraft to carry in the back. And it has to go to where the army is. That may not be airspace we have total control over. So wherever in the world we need to go, we have to be ready for it to be contested airspace. And that requires at least some degree of low observability.
1: JJ, thanks very much for that uh, great answer. An absolute pleasure to be co-hosting this program with you and already looking forward to our conversation next week. Thanks very much. Have a great week and see you next week. Indeed. Thank you, Vago. It's a great pleasure and we'll just gain altitude from here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And a special thank you
0: on this, our inaugural broadcast to GE Aerospace for sponsoring the Air Power podcast.